Today, a lot of the action in government is happening not in Washington and state capitals. It's going on in cities with mayors and civic leaders as the key players. There's a lot of learning by example going on, a lot of borrowing and outright stealing of good ideas that worked in another city. Now a new book has emerged that argues that Americans should recognize this trend, should celebrate and learn from cities as the seedbeds of progress. I'm David Thornburg, the CEO of the Committee of 70, and this is 20 by 70, the scrappy little podcast for people who expect more from Philly. I'm sitting in today for regular host Chris Satulo, who will join us at the back end of this episode. Well, we're uh, delighted to have join us in the studio uh, today, uh, Bruce Katz and Jeremy Nowak, uh, co-authors of a, of a terrific new book called The New Localism. Uh, Bruce, welcome. Great to be here. Jeremy, welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. A little bit of an introduction on, on both uh, both of these uh, folks who have been friends and colleagues and co-conspirators for uh, a long time. Uh, I think these are these are two of the the best thinkers and doers on the future of cities and how uh, city leaders react to the changing political environment that you're going to find. Bruce is a centennial scholar at the Brookings Institution in Washington. Uh, he's been uh, for 20 years uh, the, the vice president, and co-founder of the Metropolitan Policy Program, and uh, works with uh, cities and city leaders in this country and around the world. Uh, Jeremy, uh, a familiar uh, voice and face to many Philadelphians, uh, is now the Distinguished uh, Visiting Fellow at the Lindy Institute for Innovation at, at Drexel, uh, was the founder and longtime CEO of the Reinvestment Fund, uh, chair of the Federal Reserve Board uh, at one point, and um, just a great civic leader, uh, uh, now chair of the Philadelphia Citizen, uh, a digital media platform. I uh, was involved in charter schools, uh, Alex Lemonade Stand, and uh, winner of the Philadelphia Award. So, again, it's a great pleasure to have you both here. Thank you. Okay, so the new book is called The New Localism, uh, which suggests, uh, just coming off the title, there's something new. And I think uh, my sense of what's new that you're trying to key off is there's a new kind of dynamic of power that that cities and, and regions are, are facing, uh, that uh, the power... Uh, in, in your uh, words, a sort of devolved down and out. So, Br- Bruce, wh- wh- what's going on here? So what, I think, what's, what's new in the environment? Yeah, I think there's a new dynamic of power and the way we problem solve. So we've got big challenges in this country as in other cities around the world, whether it's competitiveness or social inclusion or demographic transformation, climate change. But the way we problem solve today is more bottom-up than top-down. Cities are really leading it. It's more networked, public-private civic university than done by government alone. And ideas, innovation, and capital are moving fast through global circuits and, and networks of cities. And that's because cities are networks. They're not governments. And their power derives not just from what higher levels of government give them, but from their market power. They're the center and engines of national economies and from their civic power. There are a lot of stakeholders sort of putting shoulder to the wheel to solve problems. So is this then something more than you describe it as the uncertainty and vitriol uh, that characterizes Washington? Is is it something more than that? Is there something more fundamental? Yeah, I mean, listen, we decided to write the book uh, after the election of 2016 in part because we 
it was easy for us to juxtapose what we saw in Washington and what we saw in partisanship, not only in the U.S., but in many other places, with some of the positive and more future-facing activities that were happening on the ground. So we had in front of us the juxtaposition of the problem solvers and the sense of political grievance that come, came through both right and left-wing populism in Europe, the U.S., and other places. So this was really a book that tried to counterpose that. But both localism, as we talk about it, as a problem-solving methodology, not local government, but local in the sense that Bruce just described, and populism are both, um, to some extent, uh, uh, byproducts of these dramatic, over the last 40 years, economic transition that we've been part of, which has, in part, you know, um, destabilized lots of local economies, has obviously uh, upended uh, income distribution uh, in the way that it has, and created a myriad set of problems. Uh, and those, the question is, are we going to approach those problems, problems with and sometimes understandably justified grievances, which we have and have to straighten out, or are we going to solve those problems in a very practical and pragmatic way? Um, you know, in a conversation we had earlier today, you know, it struck it struck us that the the genius of America has always been the pragmatic center. Yeah, and uh, we saw a lot of that playing out and and observe it over the last thirty four years. It's not an overnight success, what we describe in Pittsburgh or Indianapolis or many other cities. It's hard work in the trenches, but it comes from the pragmatic center much more than yeah. the sudden eruption of a political of a political shout. I have to say, uh, I was uh, you, you captured a good line from Daniel Patrick Moynihan early in the book about federalism, which mm -hmm. is some of but not all of the story that you're telling. Yeah. And he says federalism was not just uh, something we came up way back when, when we had a big country and no telephones. Right, exactly. <laughs> right, absolutely. So there, there is, but there is this like very yeah. American civic, you know, <clears throat> let's all pitch in kind of a spirit that, that well, we also didn't, through this Well, we also book. didn't build cities through, through, through federal policy. Right. right. That they were not an act of federal policy. They were built through, you know, immigration, through markets, through, you know, the dynamism of, of local politics, through real estate transactions. They are self much more self-organizing than we understand. Yeah. So this, uh, you know, key to this, uh, the construct of the book is your sense of, as Bruce said earlier, this sort of network governance. Which is it seems to me it's it's been a term that's been sort of banging around for a little while. I remember Steve Goldsmith at, sure. at Harvard writing about this. Take us a little deeper into that. Like, what are we actually talking about? Here? Well, in many and what's governance? Yeah. You yeah. Know? <laughs> well, in, governance is is really the vehicle for how we solve problems. And 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 what's different about cities than governments? Because if you go to the national government or you go to the state governments. They're highly compartmentalized. They're highly balkanized. They're really organized by specialization. And then if you're in a department of transportation or department of education or department of housing and urban development, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So you bring your specialized expertise to solve that problem. In cities, you tend to crowdsource solutions. And so the answer to traffic congestion might not be widen the road. Right? It might be, well, let's uh, locate our employment centers or our housing clusters closer to transit or closer to other transport options. So there's something about the interdisciplinary cross-sectoral nature of cities that allows you to problem solve in different yeah. ways. I, I, I think 
a lot of collaboration happens in the United States. And this is unlike the rest of the world, frankly. It's hard to find this when you leave the U.S. because sectors really are very separate from each other. But in the U.S., a lot of collaboration happens informally. You go into mm -hmm. the mayor's office and the head of the chambers there, and the head of the philanthropy and the universities, and everyone's sitting around the table talking about big things. What we're beginning to focus on here is formal collaboration. Okay. A structure. So not just kind of the pickup yeah, basketball right. no, team. That's right. There's a coach and a series of plays to run. And no, and I think this is why Indianapolis is such a critical story, because in Indianapolis, what you have is a, essentially a private civic institution, uh, the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership, where 60 CEOs of companies, the universities and philanthropies, come together with capital, and they meet to decide not to discuss. And they work very closely with the mayor and the governor and other you know, public officials. And, and this is a story that, uh, recall, the origin of this goes back to the 70s when Bill, Bill Hudnut was Absolutely. the mayor of Indianapolis. And right. they started basically with something called the Indiana Sports Corporation because they wanted to be the amateur sports capital of the world because the core of the city was completely desolate, so they started building sports facilities. Then they stole the Baltimore Colts. Yeah. That was good for Indianapolis, not for Baltimore. <laughs> um, and, and then they graduated from basketball to biotech. They, they literally began to think about, we need a high road strategy to create quality jobs. Right. I mean, how much beer and hot dogs can you consume at a basketball game? So, <laughs> right. But the, the interesting piece of this is this formal structure of an institution which has large amounts of private and civic capital that is steering and stewarding the economy. Yeah. No, no, we, it's interesting, though, David, I'll just say, because I know, you, you know you've you been so involved in public policy. You ran a school of public policy. It's hard to find that much in the academic literature. You can find, obviously, a lot about local government system structures, different, you know, how they're differentiated. You can find a little bit about authorities, and there's this whole thing in political science about regime theory and things like that. But there's actually not that much literature about what we're talking about as the co-governance, co mm -hmm. either, e either informal or formal. Particularly when it goes to the, how do you do this again? Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you move from the descriptive to the instructive, I That's guess. right. Yeah. That's right. Which that was really yeah. curious to us. Let me go back. I know you, you organized the book in some ways around a couple of case studies, Indianapolis being one, uh, my old hometown of Pittsburgh mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Copenhagen. So I want to I know virtually nothing about Copenhagen. Uh, I don't know if this showed up on another one of Donald Trump's lists, a place that we like to welcome <laughs> people from, but we'll leave that alone. But Jeremy, talk to me about, about the, the Pittsburgh and their sort of game plan and how this uh, sure. kind of network governance has come together. Well, look, I, th I think the extraordinary thing about Pittsburgh, the story, and, and again, this is another example of a 40-year overnight success, is that this was a place that fully and completely and definitively bottomed out. Yep right, in the 70s, early 80s with steel. Yeah. And it, unlike a lot of places that have had a quiet crisis over 10, 20 years, it was clear the entire sector yeah. was blown out, right? The city had to reinvent itself. We think Pittsburgh is the story of a uh, ongoing, persistent investment in excellence in, in institutions, whether it's Carnegie Mellon or some of what goes on in Pitt and other places that were forward-looking in terms of new technologies. And frankly, now Pittsburgh is a, you know, on the front front row of um, autonomous vehicles, of robotics yep. and the rest. Yep. It is also a story of high quality civic collaboration. So the philanthropies work that way. 
the corporates work that way. It is a much smaller city. You know, yeah. you're, if you, you know, a couple, 300,000 in the core, you know, a million in, in Allegheny County. Philadelphia is one and a half million in the core. The metro is between five and six million, depending on how you count it. So it's much different. Power is much more diffuse. But there is a way in that city of getting things done yep. uh, because they're, because of the level of collaboration yeah. that happens there. Just to speak to that, a little bit of a real-time example, um, we were on the phone recently with a, uh, a foundation program officer in one of the Pittsburgh foundations, and we're pitching him on an idea that he really liked. And But uh, what we are asking for was too much for that foundation to swallow. So he said, and we were shocked, he said, let me get on the phone to some other foundations in Pittsburgh and sound them out on this and see if we can bring them into the fold to kind of, you know, help you guys fill fill the bucket. Yeah. There was silence on our end of the phone. Because and, that seemed like an unnatural act, you know, right, <laughs> that he was doing that. It right? did. It, it, it did kind of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just to give them their due, what, what is the Copenhagen story? So for, for the international crowd. That yes. So Copenhagen is the story of a city recognizing that it has public wealth in what it owns. So if you go back 30 years, uh, Copenhagen uh, was flat on its back. The city, 18% unemployment, fiscally bankrupt. The mayor and the national leaders uh, who were meeting together, that's unusual for the United States, um, basically said, we can't tax our citizenry anymore. We got to find a new way to unlock revenue for infrastructure investment. And what they had in mind was a state-of-the-art metro system for the entire city. So what they did together was they transferred all the land and buildings they owned, first between the downtown and the airport, the Oristad district, and then along the harbor, because the harbor had lost its raison d'etre. I mean, the, basically the port had moved to Malmo in Sweden when they built a bridge. They, they put all the assets under a publicly owned, professionally managed corporation called Copenhagen City and Port Development Corporation. And that corporation began to manage the disposition, the sale and leasing of land to private developers, pension funds, and others uh, for the regeneration of the port, revitalization of the area. And then all the revenue from this went to service the debt on a state-of-the-art transit system. So th when you go to Copenhagen and travel the subway, not a dollar of tax money. Whoa. It's all from land sales. Yeah. Now, and land leases. And that sends a big signal to the United States because if you go to most cities in the U.S., first of all, they know what they owe, pension liabilities. They don't have a clue what they own because the ownership by the public tends to be fragmented across authorities. B, they don't know the value of what they own. And C, there's no disposition strategy or strategy for using the revenue and the yield to invest back in public good. Yeah. This was our way, you know, this was a, a really important chapter in the book that plays out in some other chapters because this was a, an opportunity to think broadly about the state of public finance. Mm -hmm. So if you went to most places, they can give you, you know, in counting, you'd say they can give you a profit and loss statement, which is the budget. As Bruce noted, they can give you, tell you what their liabilities are, or, you know, various forms of debt, you know, deferred pension funds, uh, health care costs and the like. But they very rarely can tell you what their assets are. And they certainly can't tell you the market value of the assets, nor most importantly could they say if they had, say, a 50 basis point increase in the return on assets, right. what would it mean 
in terms of next year's budget and what would that mean in terms of the way they think about tax structures. The point here is that cities are wealthy in many instances but yep. don't know it. Yep. And, they, and the wealth is inert. The wealth isn't understood. So think about – and I'll use the example of a port authority north of us, right? I won't even talk about ours. But think of the example of, of the New York Port Authority. Sure. I mean wealthiest city in the world. Um, they're worried. They're wondering, obviously, where are they going to get the money for what is $135 billion to redo the subway $111 system? $111 billion to retrofit the subway, subway system. I mean yeah. so there's lots of but, – but one place to look is the actual management of that public wealth. Now, we're, we're making an argument here that is this is not about privatization, although there are assets sometimes that should be privatized, but that there's an argument to be made between privatization and between just government management and or the mediocrity of certain kinds of government management. You know, the right sometimes overly fetishizes markets and the left overly fetishizes government, mm -hmm. right? And we've, we're in, a, in a, some ways we're in a, a kind of a deadlock, both in terms of our thinking, right, and also in terms of our ability to practice something right. that would create more public wealth. That means, however, that you've got to have a type of governance and a type of a mandate that would allow you to manage that with private sector principles and at the same time have that be used for public wealth. Right. For public, the Let me drag wealth. this back to uh, Philadelphia and our challenges and opportunities and a particular question, um, which is, you know, if you're, if you're Jim Kenney, two years into your term, maybe you're looking at another six, six years, you've read the book. What does this convince you that you ought to be doing more of, less of? How does this change your notion of what it means to be a mayor of a big city in this kind of networked, somewhat amorphous, uh, slippy, slidey kind so, of a – So I, I say two things come to mind. And um, one thing is that if you agree with our thesis about network governance and about the devolution of power – then leadership increasingly has to be practiced as a horizontal art, not as a vertical mm -hmm. art. And it has to be multi-sectoral. So, so you're not just thinking about the people who work directly for you. Right. Correct. It's the people who are to your side or to another sector. And it's so. the utilization of soft power mm. to um, convene, sometimes coerce, you know, sometimes shame. But it's the utilization of soft power for in those sectors that will allow you to do big things, mm -hmm. right? Because you don't have the ability to do it in many instances by yourself, right? Yep. You have the ability to stop things. You have the ability to punish things. You sometimes, yeah, but you've got to, in many ways, think differently. And I'm, that's not a critique of Kennedy or of anybody, but that this is a, it's a new ball game in right. terms of that. And that includes, by the way, where, how you're going to utilize, you know, um, global capital for infrastructure, Right. Yeah. And how you're set up to do that and what's your ability to put together um, transactions that will work for that. That would be number one. Number two, and you can see the difficulty that um, a mayor like Kenny has. You can see it in the in all the arguments back and forth about the soda tax, you know, uh, and early childhood education. There is a, there is a need. He's just taken on the schools. There's going to be a need in his mind, which I think is probably correct, for more money for the schools. But yet there's limited ability to generate more taxes. So you've got to say, where's the revenue come from, right? right? And with pension fund liabilities, you're constantly eating into the regular budget every year in new ways. And so you've got to look for new ways of thinking about 
how you manage the airport, how you manage the port. So that's where you, you get back to the sort that's of public wealth. That's where you get wealth. back to the public wealth question. Yeah. And that means you've got to take a lot of really tough things on. Like remember, in the U.S., for a variety of reasons, a lot of this public wealth is scattered through yeah. lots of state chartered authorities, yeah. convention centers, airports, you know, you name it, you know, sports authorities. Um, and there's, you know, people get appointed to those boards. Sometimes they're terrific people in yeah. terms of governance, but they're appointed to those boards often for political reasons, right? Yeah. This one, the mayor gets X, the governor gets Y, you know, and the, when the D's are in, they get theirs, and the R's have theirs. And you, you identify people by not what their expertise is to run a transportation uh, you know, or a port, you identify them by it's this person's person, it's that person's person. They they yeah. they know this one in this in the Delaware who County sent Board you? or something. Yeah, who sent you? Who do you represent? Not that you represent the corp, yeah. and that you represent the interests of the public and the interests of public wealth yeah. in particular. That we're coming to the end of that. That was a that's we think a legacy of 20th century industrial America. Yeah. It's interesting you talking about authorities, and I, I was struck. You led off the book when you're talking about power with this great quote, quote from, from Robert Caro, yeah, right, yeah, right. of whom I'm a huge fanboy. Yeah, and yeah. the power broker to me has always been required reading sure, if sure. you want to understand uh, politics. Uh, but Caro's line was that my interest is in power, how power works. Yep. Now, you know, the power broker is a story about Robert Moses, Absolutely. who basically invented the modern authority. And at one Absolutely. point, I think, chaired... 12 different public authorities oh, yeah. in New York, which basically let him do just about whatever yeah. he wanted. So that was like maybe the, that centralization yeah. in the last century for— Well, and it was a way to deal with the the uh, problem of just, you know, politics yeah. is every, every four years, every six years. And so that was a way to have a kind of long-term agenda setting, right. right? It played a role, and it can still play a role. The question is how those things are organized. You know, the, probably the best line I, I've ever heard about that was from our good friend Paul Levy from yeah. the Center City District who said he he read that book and and while others viewed it as a cautionary tale he saw it as a revenue stream right <laughs> and, and that it was and, yeah it was you know as he, he built the center city district now, yeah. you couldn't imagine the rebuilding of no. philadelphia without the center city district that's right i you think could never imagine i think it. there's one other message for the mayor in this book which is for a long time our cities had a managed decline yeah and now they need to maximize growth and growth tends to occur in this magic geography. Here it's the center city as it morphs into University City District, which is only you know probably three or five square miles in a 130 square mile city in, in a metropolis of hundreds of square miles. So it's a relatively small geography, but that's where the magic happens. Right. That's where the talent is, that's where the innovative firms are. And you've got to maximize growth. You've got to set off the growth machine. And you've got to move to 2x on jobs and yep. 3x on tax revenue or else the whole city dies. Yeah. And I don't think that conversation happens in most places. People don't understand how small the geography of growth yeah. really is. And that, that white-hot core. Absolutely. And, and Paul Levy has done a masterful job mm -hmm. of sort of reminding people again and again of that. So let me widen the lens and give you both a shot at this question. And then we'll, then we'll sort of wrap up. You know, you're talking in this book really about a different way of behaving uh, for leaders, both in public sector and private sector, which is ultimately about a different culture, a different set of expectations about this is what we do and this is how we do it. Collaborative. It's recognizing that, you know, it's, it's kind of a matrix of, of actors and so forth. Um, 
culture, as we were talking earlier, is very resilient uh, and resistant once it's in place, but it's kind of also, that also means it's hard to, to build over time. So what's, what's your recommendation to a place that reads this book and says, this doesn't sound like us. We've got a long way to go here. What do we do now? Well, Bruce? you know, I, I think the first thing it's, you know, is go look at one of these models. Yeah. I, I mean, get in a car, get on a train, yeah. get on a plane, and get three or five or seven or ten people from different sectors and go look at what's happening in Cincinnati or in yeah. St. Louis or Indianapolis or Pittsburgh. And, and you know, frankly, uh, there are enough examples out there, particularly in the United States, that can't be replicated, but they could be adapted and adopted. Yeah. So we're not talking about the perfect here. We're talking about stuff that really exists, uh, that is out there. You could touch it. You can bring folks here. You could go visit places. Yeah. And then, yeah, there is going to be hard work, but what are the options? Right. I mean, <laughs> compared the, to what? The, the feds are gone. <laughs> um, the state is gone to a yeah. large extent. Uh, this is it. Um, yeah. And the wealth in this city, in this region, is remarkable. Yeah. I, I mean, this place is replete with assets and advantages. And now here's a way to unlock it. Might even have a Super Bowl champion in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Jeremy, yeah. What's, what's your take on that? From your lips to God's ears <laughs> right on that one. I, I would... I would say, you know, obviously, I, I, I agree with what Bruce said, but I, I, I would say, echoing what Bruce said, you know, there's been many years where people thought we're waiting for the cavalry to come in. You know, <laughs> they yeah. thought that there was this external force that was going to come the, in. The, the, um, I always like the Marshall Plan for cities. Yeah, yeah right, 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 right. Like, right. okay, you yeah, know. That's happening. Right? <laughs> and, the, and there was this view that somehow this, there's this money that's going to come that – that's not, in fact, I mean, first of all, the majority of economic value is happening in metro areas, right? It's where the population is. It's where the value is. Uh, we compete globally. Um, and, you know, you've really, there is no choice. There's nobody else to do it. Now, yeah. I would say that there are places, and this is, gets to your question, there are places where the habits of collaboration or the habits of how do you make two plus two equal five are different than other places. I would say Philadelphia has often has been a place with extraordinary assets, but they haven't all worked together in ways to make two plus two equal five. I would say 10 years ago, two plus two equal three. Yeah. I would say we've gotten up to two plus We're two. We're at four. Equal. We're at four <laughs> now, right? And I'd say we are moving forward in, in that sense. Yeah. But there is this issue of the habits of winning, the habits of success. Um, I do think there's lots of young leaders that have yeah. come around that sort of think this way. Uh, I think there's a tendency in a lot of cities for kind of the old guard to uh, to not you know, move over. There's also, you know, Philadelphia is also a place where, you know, people come in from out of the town and they wonder what, where's the table? And it takes them five years yeah. to realize there is no table, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. And 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 in many ways, leadership is a bit more of a pickup game here, right? Yeah. And it happens in different sectors. Maybe it in different personality places. driven. That's right. As well. That's right. Personality yeah. driven for sure. Yeah. So I think we'll get to a place where we're beginning to move past that, but it's certainly slow in an old yeah. town like this. Well, I just want to close uh, with this. Uh, I ran into Jeremy on the street the other day, and we were talking about this uh, taping session. I said, let me get this straight. So the line is, all politics are national, contrary to Tip O'Neill, but all problem solving is local, and power goes to the problem solvers. 
That's absolutely kind of in a nutshell. Yeah, huh? That's a tweet. Uh, that's a tweet. <laughs> I don't do it. Okay. Well, uh, uh, Jeremy Nowak, uh, civic entrepreneur at large, and uh, Bruce Katz from the Workings Institution, co-authors of the new book, The New Localism. Uh, thanks for being here. Good luck with the book. David, thanks thank for having So let's get another voice on this conversation about this new book, The New Localism, uh, by Jeremy uh, Nowak and Bruce Katz. I'm going to drag my buddy Chris Satulo in here. Chris, how you doing? I'm doing good, Dave. So reaction shots, commentary, uh, what, what, what do you think of this collection of provocative ideas? Right. First thing, um, you know, over the years I've had a chance to, you know, spend a lot of time with Jeremy and do some projects with Bruce Katz. And... Um, the combination of those two intellects, um, as supple and as uh, sort of hard delving as they are, it, it's pretty exciting to hear what they've come up with. Yeah, there's a lot of firepower there. Yeah. So I'll tell you that one thought kept running through my head thinking about the Philadelphia application of the things they're talking about in their book. And it's Delaware River Port Authority. <laughs> <laughs> I kept thinking, you know, we have a lot of assets. We have a tremendous port. We have a beautiful river. Um, we have a lot of institutions along that river. We have the Navy Yard being reclaimed. And at the middle of all of that sits an authority, the Delaware River Port Authority. And I'll be darned if I can think of one occasion over the last 25 years of watching it where it behaved the way they recommended. Yeah. I mean, the Delaware Port Authority is a classic of what you were talking about. There's somebody who represents somebody in mm -hmm. power who's their guy on the Port Authority. And essentially the Port Authority, rather than trying to leverage and build, leverage the assets of the rivers in Philadelphia and turn them into greater wealth and greater public good, the Port Authority was always treated as the regional ATM. That's which right. Which different political factions could go to and take, you know, um, take money out, take withdrawals yeah. from it to fund whatever activity they wanted. Yeah. So we get a hell of port. We get, you know. Well, my, my favorite was when they were going to build a tram across the Delaware. Right. right. And uh, built a pier, which is still in the parking lot of the uh, Maritime Oh, you know what museum. I call that, David? No, what? I call that Philadelphia's Stonehenge. <laughs> Like years from now, you know, archaeologists will come and they'll go, we wonder what strange, mysterious gods these Philadelphians worshipped that they built I, I this idol on the river. Right. It was a, a primitive sundial. <laughs> right, exactly. Know? No, it is one half of what was supposed to be the completed tram and then uh, who knows what happened. The ATM ran out or – the po politics changed or whatever. So, yeah, we're left with um, Stonehenge. Right. Stonehenge you know, that, by that the was, That was the particular misguided enthusiasm as an adventure of one yeah. former head of the DRPA. Let's not get too far into Negadelphia. Yeah. Yes, though. I know. I know. Okay. But, it's a positive book. But indeed, you even think about something like that. There would be a way of putting people on the DRPA or any of the yeah. other authorities. Who are real people? Yeah. And who, and who approach the notion of understanding the assets, protecting them, and then doing something with them in the way that, you know, Paul Levy did um, yep. with uh, the then underestimated and disregarded assets of Center City, Philadelphia. 
where something like the DRPA could actually be what it was intended to be, an engine of economic growth and, and public good. Yeah. You know, it's possible to imagine that happening. You just, as you just said, have to wipe away your memory banks of everything yeah. that did happen over the last 20 years. That's got to be chapter three of the Expect More Philadelphia book. Right. <laughs> I, I, what else uh, piques your Well, uh, I hope Jim interest. Kenny hears these guys talk or, yeah. gets to get, you know, they get an audience with him because – I think in a lot of ways, Jim Kenney can be the mayor they're talking about, but I also think, as does anyone in his role, he can get ground down by yeah. business as usual and just sort of the, the, the blizzard of people asking favors or, you know, yeah. whining and complaining and, you know, demanding that their grievance go to the top of the to-do list. And it's hard to keep that strategic vision in front of you. Uh, last, th last thing I'd say, I remember um, – um, going to an event, which I think the Economy League might have sponsored, David, um, when, when Michael Nutter first came in as mayor, brought in Shirley Jackson. Yeah, Shirley uh, Franklin. Shirley Franklin. From Atlanta. Right, sorry. Yep. Who is the mayor of Atlanta. And um, she's, she's a character. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a chance to interview her. And she said to me, you know, all these young guys, you know, who are mayors, you know, these hot shots, um, they all come in and they want to be the mayor of everything and they want to do everything at once. And I try to tell them you can only be the mayor of one or two things and you got to just talk about those one or two things constantly and keep your eye on the prize. And then that night on the stage, she said the same thing to yep. Mike Nutter sitting there and he kind of like laughed and right. sloughed it off. And then he proceeded to try to be the mayor of everything yeah. and fall into exactly the trap. Yeah. That, and that and I think described. her thing was the incredibly glamorous and sexy job of fixing the like regional water and sewer authority. Right. She said, I'm the mayor of water. Wherever yeah. I go in the supermarket, what I talk about <laughs> is water and sewers. Yeah, Whatever question, a, the answer is water. Right. So incredibly <laughs> prosaic, the thing that she decided to focus on, but yeah. I don't think Atlanta is any of the worse for that sort of maniacal focus on an infrastructure issue. Yeah. Would that we had that kind of focus on infrastructure right now yeah. in Washington. Yeah. The other thing that I heard from Bruce and, uh, and Jeremy is that uh, mayors have to be, have to seize the growth agenda. And this is particularly true in Philadelphia. I think we get a little lulled into the sense that, you know, we're hanging with the big kids in San Francisco and Washington and Boston, Boston yeah. and so forth. And as Paul Levy and others have pointed out, we're not hitting those those numbers. No. Well, the assets might be there in theory, but that's we're right. not actually doing enough not with the them. Not the returns. And that, that, that's – you bring up another point that was really um, resonating with me as they spoke or, or connecting to something else when, when Bruce Katz was talking about – how the action where the potential for dynamic, you know, 2x, 3x, 5x growth is really centered around center city and yeah. university city where the, the big institutions, the hospitals, et cetera, are and where you know, a lot of the, you know, high-level talent wants to live or be. Well, that gets us to the age-old um, paralyzing conversation in Philadelphia about, well, you know, are you the mayor of the city? What about you, the neighborhoods? Are you mayor downtown? Yeah. Are you mayor of the neighborhoods? It's a false choice. It's always been a false choice. But we get stuck in that dichotomy yeah. and, and we don't give our leaders much room to maneuver. And so part of the task is making the case to the people who live in the neighborhoods who deserve to have decent schools and good police service. And, you know, they work hard and they, they do incredible things to hold their neighborhoods together. You know, I'm 
like constantly moved when I go around neighborhoods of Philadelphia, see how much people actually do, yeah. you know, that suburbanites don't have to do just to right. make the place where they live decent. But the only way that's going to happen is if the money flows in, the wealth right. is built out of the center, and then it can yeah. ripple to the neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. It's a false dichotomy, but you, we can't get out of it until we lose this false way of, of looking right. at the issue. Yeah. So my one last uh, take is uh, Bruce's comment about, you know, how do you learn new habits? And he said, well, you got to get out of town. you got to go to these places. <laughs> and I thought, that sounds awfully familiar because, as you know, when I was the economy, started this uh, leadership exchange, which I think is a generally good all-purpose play, no matter what the issue, get a bunch of people together, go somewhere else, figure out, you know, some aspect of what they're doing and bring it back and give it a run. So, and then, you know— the paper where I used to work that I'm still proud of and fond of will write a story about how it was a junket. So <laughs> that's part of the push and pull of yeah, living in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the stew. All right. Uh, thanks. The new localism sounds like it's a, a worthy read for anybody interested in building cities of the future. And picking up from there, David, let's just say this is the end of another episode of 20 by 70. Once again, we've been doing this in the Wexler studio uh, on the Penn campus of Kelly Ryder's house, where we're grateful for the services of our wonderful engineer, Zach Gardner. As usual, this uh, podcast is pulled together by our producer, Joel Patterson, whom we also thank. And again, want to mention our partners in this podcast, Young Involved Philadelphia which is full of the kind of active young citizens who are going to be completely, completely galvanized by the kind of thinking and the kind of strategy and the kind of energy that our guest today, Bruce Katz, and Jeremy Nowak were describing. So it really sets us up um, in a very meaningful way for the way we always end this podcast. Expect more, Philadelphia. Yeah.